Today's going to be a special day for us uh, during this time because we are about ready to hear from the greatest man who ever lived. And as soon as we hear from the greatest man who ever lived, we're going to hear from the one who is greater than him. And as soon as we hear from the one who's greatest, greater than the greatest man, we're going to be reminded of our greatest need. Because the one who is greater than the greatest man is the one who meets our greatest need. Who am I? <laughs> in John chapter 1, you can turn there in your Bibles if you would, we're going to see exactly what we're talking about. Great day, greatest man we're going to hear from. But then we're going to hear from the one who's even greater than the greatest man. And he's the one who meets our greatest need. So as you turn to John chapter 1, I'll answer the question. The first question, the answer to the first is John the Baptist. Okay? Matthew 11, 11 says that John the Baptist is the greatest person who ever lived. So now you can all win Bible trivia games. Okay? Matthew 11, 11, the greatest one who ever lived. Not David, not Moses, not Abraham, not Job. John the Baptist, hands down, the greatest one. He, then, is surpassed by the one who's greater than him. He himself will tell us this, and no doubt we're talking about Jesus, because Jesus becomes a human being like us. And then we are going to see that Jesus is the one who comes here to meet our greatest need, which would be our need for pardon, forgiveness, reconciliation. An outline would only get in the way today, and so we're not going to have any kind of outline other than we're going to look at verses 19 to 51. We'll go fast sometimes, we'll go slow other times. The goal is to understand it, to understand how it would relate to us indeed, but to understand it first so that we might live in light of what it says. Uh, certainly that's what we're doing. A uh, bigger picture of John's gospel account would be we're still in the introductory phase of things. So uh, we're still just getting acquainted, learning about who's, who's who, what's happening with Jesus. But right after we're done, starting next week, we'll see a series of signs, okay? Signs that authenticate, that prove, that demonstrate, that show in real time and real space that Jesus truly is the one that he claimed to be, that, that he proved it to be so. And that'll start next week. Uh, in chapter 2, and it'll take us quite some time going through all of these things. But if you're just joining us, you've picked a great time to start because we're just introducing. John the Baptist, Jesus, one is pointing to the other, pointing to, ultimately pointing us so that we might have help. So let's go ahead and jump in. Beginning in verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? If he quoted Matthew 11, 11, he'd say, I'm the greatest man ever. But that's not how he would speak of himself. But at least know what's happening. What's happening is the Jews want to know who this guy is. Who is this guy? That's why we have priests and Levites going. Who are you? Why would they be so interested in John? It's a pretty important question. John's kind of a weird cat, right? He's, he's a loner. He's off on his own. He dresses strange. He eats strange kinds of things. He yells at people about Jesus. He, he, he's different. So why send this 
group to find out, to investigate quite the journey, okay? We don't know exactly where this is. Uh, of course, if I wanted to sell you religious products, I would tell you exactly where this is and say, here's exactly where it happened. Um, but I mean, if, if, even if we're just guessing based upon where we think general region, it's at least 25 miles, okay? So 25 plus miles. We've got we to send an official group to find out who is this guy. Well, you want to find out because you're the Jews, you're the leaders, and you're responsible for the spiritual well-being of your people, Okay? Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and assume everything is good when it comes to motives. Go find out who this guy is. He's telling the Jews certain things and we're not so sure it's a good idea. Also know that John the Baptist is hugely popular. Okay? When we read other gospel accounts, like in Matthew chapter 3, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. We, we, we only want to know, who is this guy? We're listening to him preaching. So the religious leaders say, we have a concern. How about this? He's so popular and has so many followers or will have so many followers that even up to, is it, in Acts 18 with Apollos. Apollos, Christian, other side of the ascension, other side of the resurrection, he only knew about John's baptism. John the Baptist. So that tells us his ministry reached far and wide and was lasting. So let's find out who this guy is. And it's great that they want to find out who this guy is. How about the denials from John? Verse 20, he, John, confessed. So do notice that we're seeing a pattern here. We saw a testimony. Now we have a confession. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. We'll talk more about that later, but let's just have it be clear for now. I am not the long-awaited, anticipated, deliverer, savior, king. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. So he starts with a denial. Verse 21 says, And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. It would make sense that they would say, Are you Elijah? Because they know their Bibles well enough to know that one would come in the spirit of Elijah, before Messiah comes to announce, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. Maybe they had some similarities. They preached repentance. They both had strange senses of fashion. They're prophets. Zechariah 13, verse 4. It's kind of it. This is an interesting one. John says, no, I'm not him. If we were to look at the other gospel accounts, Jesus would say, he is him. He actually is the one. He actually fulfills the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. Matthew 11, 17, Mark 9. So apparently John doesn't know that. How about verse 21? It goes on to say, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So the anticipation would be there would be one ultimate prophet. Deuteronomy 18 talks about prophets that would come after Moses. Then maybe add in a little bit of tradition. Are you the prophet who would come in the spirit of Moses? And he says, no, I'm not him. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
In other words, we're not going home empty-handed, right? You got to got to give us something. Who in the world are you? You've got all kinds of followers. You preach, you proclaim, you're calling people to repentance, and your your target audience is the Jewish people. Verse 23, he said, I am. So he says, I'm not. Now he says, I am. He's going to quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's a zinger. That's major. I'll tell you who I am. I'm that one. Isaiah 40. Preparation is in view. So, make straight the way of the Lord. The idea is, and most of you are familiar with this, you need straight roads, you need level roads, you need roads without potholes. Okay, You need a good straight shot, point A to point B. If you know you have a special visitor coming to your town, you want to try to get the roads ready and make sure things are secure and things are ready and it's not a big problem. Well, here from Isaiah, we've got God delivering his people who have been in bondage. And so what we need is preparation. We need to get things ready. And God is going to do this. And God is going to redeem, even though Israel doesn't deserve it. We saw in the context of Isaiah when we read it for scripture reading. And yet God is going to do it. It's, it's pretty extraordinary what he's claiming here. Every time I read anything on Isaiah, I just tend to conclude there's so much I don't know. I mean, if I could sign up for being in a monastery, which I wouldn't want to do, like being married and like having a family, and anyway, if I could just go hide and just learn things, I would like to just hide with Isaiah and maybe some good commentaries in my Bible because every time I read stuff in Isaiah or I read New Testament quotations of Isaiah, it's like, huh. And then the longer you're a Christian and the more you read, the more you go, huh. With some encouragement in the huh. Because pieces start fitting together. It's still above my, my educational level, but pieces start coming together. If John is this one, if he's, if he's that one, oh, ultimate deliverance, oh, and then we're going to see all of this imagery throughout John with old temple, new temple. Priests, priests, you don't need those priests anymore. Anticipation, fulfillment. Oh, deliverance for the people of Israel, awesome. But you know what? You, you don't even understand how awesome. Ultimate deliverance. And then you start thinking in terms of what we're going to even hear in our passage and beyond in our study of John, what we're going to hear when we have Jesus as the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53. And by the way, Isaiah 40 to the end goes as a unit. So here we've got this promise of this extraordinary deliverance. And John says, I'm announcing, I'm that guy. I'm talking about that. And then we're eventually going to get to the lamb who takes away the sin. That's in Isaiah 53. And then eventually you get to, when you get into the 60s, new heavens, new earth. Jesus is the one who brings this. I'm here to tell you that. 
what you've been saying you've been waiting for has arrived. It's like pretty amazing. If you want the fancy terminology for this kind of stuff, I was saying anticipation fulfillment. You have type, antitype, fulfillment. These things really happened or really prophesied. Genuine historical events are going to be drawn upon by John. But they're pointing toward, the author of Hebrews would say, types and shadows. Substance, reality. History's been waiting for this. This is it! You want to know why Matthew eleven eleven says, the greatest man who ever lived? Because he's the one who announces Isaiah 40, Isaiah 53, and so on and so forth. It's Jesus, he's the one. That's why I like to say, he's the one you've been waiting for, even if you haven't been waiting for him. And the more I read Isaiah, I'm like, I didn't even know I was waiting for him. At least not in that sense. So the more you learn and the more you grow and you're like, ah, oh, this is amazing. As I like to say, say too often perhaps, Jesus is better than you even thought he was. This is kind of anticlimactic. We have a parenthetical statement in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. I'm like, I have no notes. What do I... What? Exciting, exciting, exciting. Oh, yeah, those guys. I just want to say one thing. We'll, we'll say more about Pharisees as we go. But the Pharisees are conservatives, Bible believers. They memorize the Scriptures. They want to protect the Scriptures. But they also believe in oral tradition because they want to be so faithful to protect things that where the Bible doesn't speak, they're sure to. But again, let's assume good, because we, we want to throw them under the bus, and for good reasons, but let's assume good for a moment. They, they want God's people to honor God. Like so many things, they start off right with good motives, and they end up bad. So the Bible doesn't speak to these issues, so we just allow freedom. No! got to button down the hatches and oral tradition. And, and they believed in the sufficiency of Scripture in a sense, in the wrong sense. And therefore, they denied the sufficiency of Scripture. They thought they, with Bibles, could answer every question. Because the Bible is sufficient to deal with everything, everything. And we would believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, as would Jesus, to deal with everything that you need to know about God and about life that God would want you to know about. But it actually gives you a lot of freedom and doesn't address everything. So in the name of sufficiency, we can answer all of your questions about everything in life. They have to go beyond the Bible and depend upon sacred tradition, self-authority. We'll talk more about them, but I at least wanted to give you a little bit of... They are actually the conservatives... Josephus tells us, the military soldier historian, that there are about 6,000 during Jesus' day. So there are plenty of them. 
Okay, let's keep going. Verse 25. They, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Baptisms were not unheard of. Okay? It's not that baptism is something they've never seen before. There are all kinds of Jewish kinds of washings. But here is this baptism, and apparently it looks like it's the kind of baptisms that Jews would use if you wanted to become a Jew. Proselyte baptism. Okay? So if you're a Gentile, and you wanted to worship the one true God, Yahweh, and you've come to know that God is the God of the Jews is the one true God, you can become a proselyte Jew, kind of sort of Jewish, a Gentile worshiper of God, but you're going to get baptized. How about this? John the Baptist is not going to all the Gentile statue worshipers and calling for them to be baptized. He's going to the Jewish people and calling them to be baptized. That's problematic. That's strange. It seems to be what's happening. That's usually what historians think is happening and Bible scholars think is happening. That's why it's, it's like, what? What are you doing? Wrong audience. Wrong message for the audience that you have. Calling for them to repent? Because we know he does that elsewhere. I want to say more about that as it would relate to Jesus, but we're not going there. Let's just keep going. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water. I baptize with water. It's emphatic. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I do this, but you know what? I'm nothing in comparison. I've got a certain authority, and I'm calling people to do this with strong authority, but I'm not even in the same category or class. I couldn't even be his servant. 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So, to the east... If you're in Jerusalem, it's the other side of the Jordan River. I'm not going to give you a, a map kind of lesson, and I'm not great with geography. But you should at least know, generally speaking, you've got up to the north on a map, up on the top of the map, you have Sea of Galilee and the Galilee region. And then you have, to the south, you have Dead Sea, and they are connected with the Jordan River. Okay? And so, to the east of the Jordan. Okay? And then to the east of the Jordan, to the west of the Jordan, and then some, you end up having Jerusalem. Not that you have to know these things, but a lot of people don't even know that the Jordan River goes from top to bottom, and they're connected that way. There's a question about Bethany, because there's a couple of different Bethanies, and which Bethany is this Bethany, and... So if you get on Google Maps and you type in Israel, Bethany, it's going to take you to a certain spot because that's the place where your tour guide takes you. So you can see where John the Baptist did the baptizing. And the people who uh, are in Jordan say it was on our side and they're right, but it might not be the exact, exact spot. 
But then the people who are in Israel who want your money to come to be an Israel tourist say, no, it's on our side, or maybe not. Or if you're in the Galilee region, there's a spot there where they really want your money, and they're going to say, you can be baptized here too, just like Jesus. And you're kind of like, well, probably not. Anyway, telling you more than you want to know. And since we're off track, when we were at this site last time, you know, you can see it's not very far. I don't know if it's as far as from me to Rick, or it's pretty close. You can see into Jordan. It's just the muddy river, depending on how much it's been raining or not. And so you're, you're standing there with the M16 dudes and dudettes. I'm like, so what would you do if one of those people on the other side in Jordan swam across? Would you shoot him? <laughs> no, we would tell them to go back. What does this have to do with any of this? It has nothing to do with it whatsoever, other than to say, you don't need to know the exact place so you can build a shrine and try to make a buck. But do notice, I witnessed, I witnessed, I saw, and it happens across the Jordan in Bethany. Jesus became one of us in real time, real space, because we're real and we need a real Savior. That's all I'm getting at. Silly sto stories aside. Where were we? We were in verse 28, right? Let's keep going. Verse 29. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do you think that sounds? That sounds good. It sounds great. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I've always thought that sounded great. Ever since I can remember, I've, I've thought that sounded great. Anybody who has a brain who reads that can go, that's supposed to sound great. It's a great announcement. But I want to remind you that Jesus is even better than you think he is. And the more that you begin to learn and think and read and comprehend big picture Old Testament, New Testament, you say, it's even better. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, knowing that John is that the announcer of Isaiah 40, knowing where Isaiah 40 goes in its unfolding of things to Isaiah 53, oh, he's that Lamb of God? The justifying Lamb of God? The substitutionary Lamb of God? He's that one? He's the Lamb of God who will bring about the new heavens and the new earth? Oh, that Lamb of God? He's here on planet earth among us? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Lamb of God? Oh yeah, that Lamb of God. How about the fact that He's God's solution to this? He's, he's the Lamb that comes from God. He's the one who isn't the type with sacrifices. He's not the type with Day of Atonement. He's not the type of all of these things. He's actually the antitype fulfillment. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one... He's the antitype. He's the ultimate. He's the one we have been waiting for. Divine provision takes away sin. That's atonement, reconciliation, forgiveness. Oh, he's even better than we realize. The sin of the world? He's that Lamb of God? John has already let us know in chapter 1 that he's not looking to build an argument for universalism. 
Because some receive him and some don't. So I think we're on good, solid ground. The world's used in different ways in different contexts. We're on good, solid ground. And John likes to do this. Not just the Jewish Savior. He's the one and only Savior. He's the Savior of the world. He's the only Savior. The only way to be saved if you're going to be saved. The only way to have your sins atoned for if they're going to be atoned for. He's that one, by the way, which is anticipated and promised in the Old Testament going way back to Genesis. Now, Israel hasn't always been good about emphasizing that. They're they're supposed to be an evangelistic people telling people about justification by faith. Read Genesis 12. But they're not always very good at it. John's making it clear. He is the Savior. The one and only Savior. Provided from God's Savior. The all-nation Savior. He's that one. Can it get better? I'm sure it's going to get better than I can even try to scratch the surface of. But it gets even better in another sense. If he is the Lamb of God who takes sin away, he's also the multi, here we go, for a multi-syllabic word, ready? The apocalyptic Lamb of God. The book of Revelation describes a lamb who provides for his people, but also a lamb who is waged war against. And yet, then he wages war and he wins. No more sin because he wins in that sense. There will be no more rebellion against God because he's the lamb of God who eradicates sin. Gets rid of rebellion. Wow. Revelation 7, 17 is the first passage I was thinking of. And 17, 14, the conquering lamb. Does John have these things in mind? I don't know for sure. I would be willing to bet he for sure has the Isaiah stuff in mind. Because of 40, 53, and following. And actually, that would actually, 60 and following would complement Revelation 17. He's better than we even realize. All these problems in our world and injustice and corruption and lies and you name the things that really bother you and trouble you and affect you. In the Revelation 17 sense, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the answer. And John the Baptist is one we should have a special affection for because he is saying, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one. So this couldn't be more applicable to us who live in a broken, corrupt, problematic world. Let's go back to to the text. Verse 30. This is he. Of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And you don't need me to help you see that that's odd and good. Right? But in case you need my help, 
If you're first, you're first. And John the Baptist says, I'm first, but I'm not first. Especially in light of what we heard in the opening verses of the book, we know that to be true. And throughout the gospel account, we're going to hear Jesus say things like, before Abraham was, what? I am. John the Baptist knows the preeminence of Jesus is actually the most reasonable thing because of who he is. Verse 31, I myself did not know him. And I'm here to tell you that that's wrong. It's not really wrong. I didn't know him. I didn't know him as this one. He's not saying, I didn't know anything about Jesus of Nazareth. Never mind the fact that they're related. I mean, he would have known about Jesus. He would have known that he was the one that never got in trouble at family reunions. Right? And every time Shabbat school teachers ask him who this was on the flannel graph, he knew the answers. Right? He... It wasn't that he didn't know about Jesus. It wasn't that he wasn't even very familiar with Jesus. We could even surmise, guess. He's not saying that. I didn't know Jesus was that one. And now I do. Now I know. He's that one. I myself did not know, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. He's calling them to repentance. He's baptizing them. They need to know who this is who takes away sin. Verse 32, and John bore witness, stressed again and again and again, right? He bore witness. I saw, again, eyewitness testimony. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I saw, even the grammar that he uses in the original text, I saw Eyes fixated. I'll never forget it. It's burned into my memory. I saw like that. It wasn't that I thought I saw. I saw vividly and I'll never, ever, 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 ever forget it. I saw that. Verse 33, I myself, again, he's stressing this so that we would understand. I myself, this eyewitness kind of testimony, did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We see the obvious. God tells John, when you see this happen, you'll know. But if we think a little bit about the Old Testament, and if you don't know the Old Old Testament, our study of John is going to be super helpful. Where you have a spirit coming upon lowercase m messiahs, okay? Kings, rulers, deliverers. You, you You see an anointing happen, and the spirit comes to give special power, special enablement. We see it with Saul. Because Saul is a king of Israel. Special, unique, Holy Spirit, divine enablement, and it's taken away. 
I mean, this is why King David says, knowing about King Saul, God, take not your spirit from me. I'm the king and I know what happens when kings act like Saul. But we need to remember that Jesus, who's an anointed one, who's the ultimate David, has the spirit remain on him. In chapter 3, verse 34, he, give, he, he has the spirit without limit. We're going to see in chapter 8 that Jesus, the greater David, never displeases the Father. So it's not just that God is going to give it to him without limit. He deserves to keep it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Him, the Holy Spirit anointing. So there's more going on here than we probably realize. Unless we're thinking about that kind of stuff. That's why he is the Christ. And then, doesn't it make sense in verse 33 that the one who always does the right thing, who is the special, unique, Holy Spirit anointed one, can then give the Spirit to those he represents. Fully, sufficiently, adequately. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And again, if we're thinking in terms of Old Testament, and let's go back to that Isaiah thing, 40, 53, and then into the 60s, new heaven, new earth, culmination, fulfillment, what we've always been anticipating and waiting for. Holy Spirit. There's that unique end of time blessing from God upon the people of God, always abiding spirit. New covenant. So Ezekiel in the 30s, we, Ezekiel 36, other texts as well, and Jeremiah. I think what's happening, I know what's happening. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Oh, that end time special reality that's going to happen that's better than we've ever seen before. Holy Spirit poured out uniquely, new covenant kind of thing. Yep, he's the one. And you could argue, yeah, but that hasn't actually happened yet in our real time and real space. I agree. But the reason it's going to happen, to whatever degree it hasn't happened, is because of who Jesus is and because of what he does. I know that's true. He's the one we've been waiting for. And maybe when it comes to our experience in fullness, he's the one we're still waiting for, but the only reason we're actually waiting for him is because he came and did everything necessary and so we can have confidence in him. Make sense? If not, we'll have a special meeting afterward. We're just going to keep seeing this kind of stuff in John. If you don't think Jesus is the one the Old Testament has been waiting for, it's going to be a rub. Going out of his way to show he is the one. Let's go to verse 34. And I have seen 
Again, special grammar used. Perfect tense. Riveted in my memory. Burned in. I have seen and have borne witness. Perfect tense. I, I, I really, truly, genuinely, I was there. This isn't in some kind of weird, funky, made-up dream that's uh, out of, outside of history or my imagination. I have seen, I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's the one. We'll come back to that title. I don't want to downplay it. Verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. These are John's disciples, not Jesus' disciples. A disciple is a follower, a pupil. Verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. You've got to love that, right, by the way? There's John, Mr. I'm the greatest man who ever lived. And here comes Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. It's time to follow him. I'm not your guy. Verse 37, the two disciples heard, heard this. Heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means, which means teacher. Literally, it means my great one. But it's used for teachers. Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. If we look, most people think it's 4 p.m. It's the end of the day. If we're going from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., roughly sun up to sundown, it's the end of the day. That's why they do it. Not even necessary to know, but John is giving us specifics. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak, followed Jesus, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Anointed one, king, special deliverer. I already mentioned that. One interesting thing to do that we're not going to do right now is to see that it is used in different ways, not just for kings. Sometimes it's used for priests. The priests are specially anointed. It's not only used for kings and priests. This anointed word, the Messiah word, is also used for, at times, prophets. And so, as one wise commentator says, he is the Messiah in every way. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. All of those antitypes become realities in Christ. Better than we even think. He's the high... Uh, sorry, you're going to have to take my word for it. Um, I hate to do that, but we're going to run out of time. Yeah, I don't want to do that to you. Moving right along. Sorry about that. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. 
you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I'm going to name you what you are going to become. Foundation, rock, as an apostle and leader of apostles. Matthew 16 kind of stuff. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida. Originally from there. It's not where he's living, but he's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And my note there is, this is out of control. This is so out of control. It's out of control great. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote? Really? I mean, it's kind of like one thing to say, well, the prophets spoke to him in prophecies. Oh, yeah, fair enough. But, but actually, he's looking to say something bigger than that. He's the one that's wrote about in the law too. The Pentateuch? Oh, that seems one of, you know, you're seem, you seem to be reading into the Bible a lot. That's not very ethical. Yeah, I've been told that before. All of this anticipation finds its fulfillment, expectation, reality in Jesus. Wow. In Carson's helpful commentary, he says, that is the stance of the entire gospel, John's gospel. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. But you don't need D.A. Carson to tell you that. What you really need is Philip and Nathaniel. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We've already had an allusion to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18. But he's going to go on to reference Genesis. And he's going to say, that points to Jesus. Genesis 28. Look, don't take my word for it. 46. Nathanael said to him, can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. We're going to get to the Genesis thing in just a second, but just as a point of kind of interest when it comes to uh, prejudice and just how messed up people are, we are. Nathaniel's from Cana, which is a town in Galilee, and people from Judea were antagonistic toward people in that region. Okay? So Nathaniel from Cana, which is in Galilee, would have been a despised person when it comes to people from Judea. So people throw rocks at him, okay? And he doesn't learn his lesson from it. What he does is he just maintains his own bias and prejudice and dogs people from other places. It's just how we do it, right? 
The amazing thing is, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus from Nazareth. No good thing comes from counts of blood. I mean Nazareth. And that's just trying to be funny. There are things that aren't so funny. And I don't want to read too much into this, but all of these disciples are jacked up. Right? Peter doesn't earn the title because he's so awesome. They're, they're all jacked up on all different levels. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? From Nazareth. 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I don't know for sure what, what, what to say about that. Jesus isn't, isn't saying he's inherently good and doesn't need a savior. He might be complimenting him that he's committed on whatever level. Maybe it's actually in light of what he just says. There's a guy that calls it like he sees it. Right? No pretenses. Here's the guy who just insulted me because I'm from Nazareth. Right? Everybody else is thinking it. I'm going to compliment this guy. Not sure. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you? When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And he's saying more than he even realizes. You are the Son of God, King of Israel. Let's keep going. Oh, this is just painful. It's not painful. I, I just don't want to stop. You're the Son of God. By the way, that's a title that's used at times for Israel. Israel's a son of God, and they're an unfaithful son. Behold the son of God. One who's faithful. Exodus 4, Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 32, Jeremiah 31, Hosea 11.1. 1. Jesus is the fulfillment Verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And the signs are about ready to start in chapter 2. That's the beginning of the great things he's going to see. Then how about verse 51? This is amazing. This is from Genesis 28. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That, that, that's lifted right out of, for a Jew who knows his Old Testament, who identifies with Jacob, because they do, that, that's amazing. We're going to see something like that? Yeah, you're going to see something like that. You're going to see me affirmed as the one and the way to heaven. Proven before your very eyes. He's called the Son of Man. We'll get to that because it comes up a ton. Son of Man is used in all different ways. We forget that Son of Man is used in 
Daniel 7 for the one who has ultimate authority that lasts forever. So if nothing else, don't think son of God, deity, son of man, humanity. Way too simplistic. Son of God, for sure we think deity. Son of God, for sure we think ultimate, faithful. Son of man, at least from an Old Testament perspective, among other meanings, he's the one who will have ultimate authority that lasts forever. It's messianic. If anything, you could say it argues for his deity. Someone once told me a good landing is the kind you walk away from. Okay, so we're going to land the plane. It hasn't been pretty. Um, It's not a pretty conclusion, but we're going to walk away from it. One major emphasis we've got to have in our minds, even if we're just starting to scratch the surface, he'll unpack more of this as we go, and we've got to see that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, whether we've been waiting for him or not, he is the answer. Greatest man, no, he's greater than the greatest man, and he deals with your greatest problem, which is your sin. That's why we trust in him and not in ourselves. This is the best kind of history because it's history that not only reaches backward, it reaches to the new heavens and the new earth. He's the answer. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together, even though it's been rushed. Thank you for the fact that we're able to be pointed to Jesus by John the Baptist. May the men and women and boys and girls who are here today learn a lesson from John the Baptist. May we leave resting in Jesus, but also pointing not to ourselves, but pointing to Jesus. Even allow us to point ourselves to Jesus and not ourselves, like John the Baptist. In his name we pray, amen.